welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, December 19th through Sunday, the 22nd, feature guest conductor Edo DeVart and violin soloist Leela Josephowitz. The program includes a foxtrot for orchestra, the chairman dances, music by John Adams, with Josephowitz, violin concerto in D by Igor Stravinsky, and after intermission, music by Antonin Vorjak, Carnival Overture, and Symphony No. 8. Here are Philip Usher's program notes on Stravinsky's Violin Concerto in D, a work lasting about 22 minutes. Stravinsky did not trust virtuosos. In order to succeed, they are obliged to seek immediate triumphs, he once wrote, and to lend themselves to the wishes of the public, the great majority of whom demand sensational effects from the player. Stravinsky was not eager to compose a violin concerto when the music publisher, Willy Stecker, first suggested that he write something for Samuel Dushkin, a remarkable young violinist. He was particularly skeptical since he had never met Dushkin or even heard him play. Only later did Stravinsky admit that he was also worried because he could not play the violin himself. I hesitated at first, Stravinsky wrote in his chronicle, because I am not a violinist, and I was afraid that my slight knowledge of that instrument would not be sufficient to enable me to solve the many problems which would necessarily arise in a course of a major work specially composed for it. Strecker assured the composer that Dushkin would always be available to advise him on technical matters. Still uncertain, Stravinsky consulted Paul Hindemith, who said that Stravinsky's inexperience might be a blessing in disguise since it would give rise to ideas which would not be suggested by the familiar movement of the fingers. Stravinsky finally agreed to Strecker's proposal, but he did his homework anyway. He carefully studied all the great classical violin concertos before he wrote a note of his own. Stravinsky and Dushkin met early in 1931 in Wiesbaden in Willy Strecker's house and hit it off immediately. Stravinsky found Dushkin exceptionally musical and down-to-earth. Dushkin was surprised that the notorious composer was unassuming and affectionate. Stravinsky began to compose almost at once. That winter, he and Dushkin met for lunch in Paris. Stravinsky took out a piece of paper, Dushkin remembered, and wrote down this chord and asked me if it could be played. I had never seen a chord with such an enormous stretch from the E to the top A, and I said, no. Stravinsky said sadly, quel dommage, what a pity. After I got home, I tried it, and to my astonishment, I found that in that register, the stretch of the 11th was relatively easy to play, and the sound fascinated me. I telephoned Stravinsky at once to tell him that it could be done. When the concerto was finished, more than six months later, I understood his disappointment when I first said, no. This chord, in a different dress, begins each of the four movements. Stravinsky himself calls it his passport to the concerto. The two men began to work together on their concerto, like Brahms and Joachim, more than 50 years before. Dushkin was amazed at how slowly it went, and he often found Stravinsky hunched over the piano, grunting and struggling to find the notes and the chords he seemed to be hearing. Gradually, Dushkin watched the concerto come to life on the plain white pages of Stravinsky's notebook. 
Dushkin was amused that Stravinsky drew his own staff lines as he went, using a little roller made especially for him. Some staves are longer, others shorter, sometimes just one line, sometimes several lines, so that when the page is finished, it looks like a strangely designed drawing, and each page looks different from the preceding page. At various intervals, Dushkin recalled, he would show me what he had just written, sometimes a page, sometimes only a few lines, sometimes half a movement. Every one of Dushkin's suggestions, no matter how simple, sent Stravinsky back to the drawing board. He behaved like an architect who, if asked to change a room on the third floor, had to go down to the foundation to keep the proportions of the whole structure, Dushkin remembered. The violinist even grew bold enough to propose entire passages of his own, which Stravinsky rejected. Reminded of a pushy salesman at the Galerie Lafayette, isn't this brilliant? Isn't this exquisite? Look at the beautiful colors. Everybody's wearing it. To which he had replied, yes, it is brilliant. It is beautiful. Everyone is wearing it. I don't want it. The first movement was completed on March 27th. The two middle movements were finished before June 16th, when Stravinsky went with his family to Vorep, north of Grenoble, where he wrote the finale, while Dushkin learned the first three movements. The full orchestral score is dated September 25th, less than a month before the premiere in Berlin. The final product is pure Stravinsky. The influence of Dushkin, despite his tireless salesmanship, is entirely in the details and cannot be detected, and it is unlike any other concerto in the literature. Stravinsky's sensibilities had already determined that he would not write a grand romantic vehicle for a dazzling artist parading his virtuosity. The composer's interest in 18th century music may have suggested the more likely model of Bach's Brandenburg concertos, where the soloist is always among friends, collaborating and conversing rather than stealing the spotlight. The relationship between soloist and orchestra is fluid throughout Stravinsky's concerto. He writes very few measures that do not include the solo violin in ever-changing combinations with the members of the orchestra. The music is a kaleidoscope of duets, trios, and various larger chamber ensembles. And in the finale, the solo violin even engages in a duet with the concertmaster, a hint of Stravinsky's fondness for Bach's concerto for two violins. Stravinsky's orchestra is not small, it is particularly heavy in winds and brass, but he rarely uses the full complement, so that it often sounds like a chamber orchestra. Stravinsky specifically asks for fewer strings than the norm to offset the solo violin, and in the opening toccata, the listener is scarcely aware that there are violins in the orchestra at all. In his Symphony of Psalms, composed the preceding year, Stravinsky omitted the upper strings completely. The concerto is divided unconventionally into four movements. Two bright, bustling movements in D major frame two contrasted arias. All begin with that passport chord, essentially the top three open notes on the violin, D-A-E, with the middle note played up two octaves. The music is enlivened by old, familiar gestures from music's immense attic, but as always, Stravinsky gives each chord or melodic turn a new twist. Hindemith knew that Stravinsky would never be limited by the patterns the hand already knows. Stravinsky deliberately writes music that shakes our expectations and makes us listen freshly to every note. The opening toccata 
from the Italian toccare to touch, is lively and graceful. The tempo is rapid and unchanging, as dependable as a Swiss watch. The two central arias, a title favored by Bach for slow movements, are both in minor keys. The first, in D minor, begins like a two-part invention for solo violin and cellos. The second, in F-sharp minor, is a long-lined, richly embellished lyrical melody. The concerto doesn't offer the soloist a cadenza, though the entire last movement is tireless, flamboyant, virtuoso display, despite Stravinsky's reluctance to call attention to the matter. Program notes by Philip Husher on Stravinsky's Violin Concerto in D. And now on to Antonin Dvorak's Symphony No. 8 in G Major, a work lasting about 36 minutes. On August 12, 1893, Antonin Dvorak conducted his G Major Symphony at the World's Columbia Exhibition in Chicago. According to the printed booklet prepared for Bohemian Day at the fair, the exposition orchestra consisted of the Chicago Orchestra, as it was then known, enlarged to 114 men. The G major symphony was listed as number four, which is how it was known during the composer's lifetime, although we now number it the eighth of Dvorak's nine symphonies. In fact, to the late 19th century, Dvorak was the composer of just five symphonies. Only with the publication of his first four symphonies in the 1950s did we begin to use the current numbering. By now, even generations of music lovers who grew up knowing this genial G major symphony as number four have come to accept it as number eight. By the time he came to Chicago, Dvorak had already conducted this symphony several times, always to an enthusiastic response, first in Prague and then in London, Frankfurt and Cambridge, where he received an honorary Doctor of Music degree there in 1891. Quote, nothing but ceremony and nothing but doctors, he remembered. All faces were serious, and it seemed to me as if no one knew any other language but Latin. The Chicago reception, capped by tremendous outbursts of applause, according to the Tribune, was equally positive. In the 1880s and 1890s, Dvorak was as popular and successful as any living composer, including Brahms, who had helped promote Dvorak's music early on and had even convinced his own publisher, Shimrock, to take on this new composer and to issue his Moravian duets in 1877. Dvorak proved to be a prudent addition to the catalog, and the Slavonic dances he wrote the following year, at Shimrock's request, became one of the firm's all-time bestsellers. Dvorak was then insulted and outraged when, in 1890, Shemrock offered him only a thousand marks for his G major symphony, particularly since the company had paid 3,000 marks for the last one and he gave the rights to the London firm of Novello instead. At least he did not follow the greedy example set by Beethoven and sell the same score to two different publishers. Dvorak's G major symphony is his most bucolic and idyllic. It is, in effect, his pastoral, and like Brahms' second or Mahler's fourth, it stands apart from his other works in the form. Like the subsequent New World Symphony, composed in a tiny town set in the rolling green hills of northeast Iowa, it was written in the seclusion of the countryside. 
In the summer of 1889, Dvorak retired to his country home at Vysoka, away from the pressure of urban life and far from the demands of performers and publishers. There, he realized that he was ready to tackle a new symphony. It had been four years since his last, and that he was eager to compose something different from the other symphonies with individual thoughts worked out in a new way. Composition was remarkably untroubled. Melodies simply pour out of me, Dvorak said at the time, and both the unashamedly tuneful nature of this score and the timetable of its progress confirm the composer's boast. He began his new symphony on August 26th. The first movement was finished in two weeks, the second a week later, and the remaining two movements in just a few days apiece. The orchestration took only another six weeks. The first movement is, as Dvorak predicted, put together in a new way. The opening theme, pointedly in G minor, not the G major promised by the key signature, functions as an introduction, although significantly it is in the same tempo as the rest of the movement. It appears like a signpost at each of the movement's crucial junctures, here before the exposition, later before the start of the development, and finally to introduce the recapitulation. Dvorak is particularly generous with melodic ideas in this movement. As Leos Janacek said of this music, you've scarcely got to know one figure before a second one beckons with a friendly nod, so you're in a state of constant but pleasurable excitement. The second movement, an adagio, alternates C major and C minor, somber and gently merry music, as well as passages for strings and winds. It is a masterful example of complexities and contradictions swept together in one great paragraph. The central climax, with trumpet fanfares over a timpani roll, is thrilling. The third movement is not a conventional scherzo, but a lilting, radiant waltz marked Allegro Grazioso, the same marking Brahms used for the third movements of his second and third symphonies. The main theme of the trio was rescued from Dvorak's comic opera The Stubborn Lovers, where Tonic worries that his love Lenka will be married off to his father. The finale begins with a trumpet fanfare and continues with a theme and several variations. The theme, introduced by the cellos, is a natural subject of such deceptive simplicity that it cost its normally tuneful composer nine drafts before he was satisfied. The variations, which incorporate everything from a sunny flute solo to a determined march in the minor mode, eventually fade to a gentle farewell before Dvorak adds one last rip-roaring page to ensure the audience enthusiasm that, by 1889, he had grown to expect. Program notes by Philip Husher on Dvorak's Symphony No. 8. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.